Welcome everyone to another episode of 42 to Doomsday. I'm Rob. And I'm Mark. And I'm JR. And we continue our month-long Terrible 2 celebration by wheeling out another guest who you've just heard, who hasn't been on for a while. Here's the man who described this podcast on UK iTunes as an informative and engaging listen from two guys who plainly have no taste when it comes to the recent series, but know their stuff right enough when it comes to classic Doctor Who. It's the one and only J.R. Southall. How are you, J.R.? I'm good. I'm very good, thank you. How are you guys? Very good, J.R. Thank you for uh, returning. And I stand by every word of that review. Every (laughs) single word. We're just grateful for any review, so we'll take it. We'll take it. Uh, (laughs) Fair enough. Right, I'm going to get a little bit of a shock in a moment, aren't I? Why? Because I have no idea what you guys have got planned for me. We're going to be kind to you, so don't worry, we'll be gentle. Okay. Hit it, Rob. Oh, okay. <laughs> Death in heaven. No. No. <laughs> no, don't. Don't, don't. So we're going to be asking JR a number of questions. Nothing about death in heaven, of course. A number of questions, disparate questions about different topics, and we'll see where they take us. Oh, that's interesting. It's not going to be one big subject, then. It's going to be all sorts of little things. We're going to riff it. Okay. Should we do death in heaven first? We haven't got it on our list. I just threw it out there. I know you did, but now you've thrown it out there, I'm saying bring it up. No, no, no. I'll, I'll ask the question then. So almost a year on then, JR... Uh, having had time to percolate, have your thoughts percolate about uh, Death in Heaven? What do you What do you think uh, of Death in Heaven and its impact on fans? Oh, well, you're talking basically about the Brigadier, really, aren't you? Well, I tell you, two things about that episode. One is that it's not aimed at Doctor Who fans, right? Some of the stuff that's in there that references back to the classic series you know, and particularly the way the episode is set up, kind of as a remake of The Invasion. That's the fan-serving stuff. But actually, the episode itself is about the characters in the same way as maybe you'd get to the end of a series of something like Silent Witness or Spooks or whatever, and you'd have an episode where the story arcs about the characters are the ones that come to the fore. So Death in Heaven really is about the characters and in the general public's mind pays off on all the things that have been building up about the characters. Classic series fans would like it to have paid off more to do with the story plot elements really to be more Doctor Who-y. But it's, you know, it's more of a regular drama episode than it is a Doctor Who episode. And, you know, we'd had 11 Doctor Who-y episodes prior to it. So I think it's a small sacrifice to make, really, to have the series wrap up in that way. But really what you're asking about is the Brigadier. And I suppose there are two things about that. One, I didn't think it was, uh, you know, an especially decent way of doing it myself. You know, I, I I didn't find it as objectionable as a lot of people, but it's not something I'd have done myself. But, given that Nick Courtney's dead, what else was Stephen Moffat going to do? If he had set up the entire series as kind of a tribute to Unit, given that the series finished on Remembrance Sunday weekend, and so he had made that series kind of as a tribute to the unit era almost. And to pay tribute to the unit era without paying tribute to the character of the Brigadier would have been a bit silly. Uh, some people say he's already done that in The Wedding of River Song. No, in The Wedding of River Song, he paid tribute to the actor who played the character. And in Death in Heaven, he played tribute to the character rather than the actor. So people who are getting offended on behalf of the actor are really looking at it from the wrong angle. It's not about the actor. That's already been dealt with a couple of years ago. It's about the character. 
And as always, there is a precedent in the classic series in that in Deadly Assassin, what they did was they took a popular character who had been played by a popular actor who had died two years previously and recast that character with a different actor who was playing that character as a walking cadaver. And of course, because that's back in history somewhere, we don't bat an eyelid. But it's almost exactly what they did with the Brigadier in Death in Heaven, except with the Brigadier in Death in Heaven, rather than just having him as a, a story point in a story that's regarded as sort of having little regard for the continuity of Doctor Who in The Deadly Assassin, what they've done is they've paid tribute to the Brigadier this time around. And maybe it was the wrong way to pay tribute to him. Maybe you get away with it with the Master because you're not paying tribute, and you don't get away with it with the Brigadier because you are paying tribute. But all I'm saying is there's precedence there for doing it in that kind of a way. And while I didn't especially like it, I didn't mind it, and I certainly wasn't, you know, offended by it. There you go, we've done Death in Heaven. Just to that, I would say two things. You could say that you could get away with replacing Delgado because in story, the the Master is a Time Lord and there's another body on offer to use. That's true, but I'll just say one thing about that. Nobody else had ever played the Master at that point, so that part was identified with that character. And I take your point, though, I take your point. The other point I would make, that if, if Moffat um, had timed it uh, as a happy coincidence, I suppose, with Remembrance Day... Wouldn't it have been better as a story device to have had Danny uh, in the role of the Brigadier, if you're talking about a soldier? Well, yeah, but I think that's what he was doing. He was putting Danny in the role of the Brigadier in order to pay tribute to the character of the Brigadier, but you couldn't pay tribute to the character of the Brigadier unless you at least had him appearing, which is why he gets like a 30-second cameo, effectively. I think... I think if you wanted to do it like that, that's probably just about the only way you could get away with doing it. Whether it was a good decision or not, you know, hard to say. I think the portrait in the plane was the ultimate tribute for me. Mm. And at the end, it's just like digging up a relative. Nick Courtney and the Brigadier, to me, are the, are the same person. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. Because of that longevity of the show, you know, and he loved the show and he, he was a great ambassador for the fans of the show. I think we've said it plenty of times, you know, the Iron Page, I found it quite offensive. I take your point about the, the master and uh, the Delgado situation as well. I think the only other thing is, yeah, a lot of people have said the portrait was enough, but I think in... that That's in fandom terms, but in storytelling terms, general public... I think the portrait, it just wasn't proactive enough. I think you just needed a tiny bit of proactivity to really sell the idea that what you are doing is kind of paying tribute to this character and this organisation as well. And you know what sort of sells to me the fact that he is doing it as a tribute to UNIT is the fact that it is kind of a remake of the invasion and it does have the Cybermen outside St Paul's Cathedral and it does have UNIT based on a plane, which was, of course, UNIT's first story. So it was kind of full circle for UNIT. It was, it was, you know, I don't think there's any question it was a tribute to UNIT on Remembrance Sunday weekend. Anyway, there you go. <laughs> I still prefer the invasion. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> does, does, does that mean that as... Moffat referenced the the web of fear in the snowmen referencing the invasion means that the two episodes of the invasion have been found <laughs> who knows well they hadn't I found just wanted all to throw of the that web out of there. fear had they 
Do you know, the no, funny thing true. is, as well, and I don't know if this is coincidence, but I have mentioned it, and it's possible that it wasn't coincidence, and that, you know, because Stephen Moffat, he doesn't just say to writers, write me a story, and then I'll uh, see whether I like it or not. What he does is he'll say, come up with an idea, and they'll come up with an idea, and the idea will be, beings are breaking into our universe from a two-dimensional world. And Stephen Moffat will go back to them and say, that's a really interesting idea. Why don't you set the climax of that story in the London Underground? So what I'm saying is, I don't think the way Flatline finished was necessarily coincidental either. I think Stephen Moffat threw that in as a reference back to The Web of Fear just before his remake of The Invasion. You know, I think he had that whole thing, that whole series, planned right from the word go. And, uh, you know, the missing episodes crowd have said, oh, there's lots of references back to the 1960s. And so it's obviously all secret references to missing episodes. And I'm thinking, no, it's lots of references back to the 60s because that's when Unit was born. There was that reference in Time Heist, though, where it had PV. <laughs> had a, that address to that lock-up in Wigan, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got to say, that one went over my head. <laughs> Gotta go back and have a look at yeah. it. Yeah, mind you, there's a reference in Robert of, Robert of Sherwood, <laughs> Robot of Sherwood. <laughs> we do the same thing. There's a reference in there to the Carnival of Monsters, so you know it's you know it's like you can pull these references out and say right, this one's specifically about this, this one's specifically about that. But the only thing that was really in there across the whole, well, certainly the latter half of the series, is references to Unit, really. Do we find that Moffat uh, and his writing team are more happy throwing references back to the classic series than RTD was? Or am I misremembering uh, RTD's uh, era? No, I think you're right. Yeah, no, I think you're right too. Russell T Davies obviously did, because if you remember, in Bad Wolf... I think it was Bad Wolf rather than Parting of the Ways. There was a reference back to Frontier in Space, for example. So it's not like he didn't do it at all. I think it's just that the series is so established now. Russell T. Davis was a bit afraid to put too many references in, in case it looked to the outsider, like the series was being all sort of self-celebratory and smug. Whereas, because it's so established now, I think Stephen Moffat's happy to do it, because you can tell dark water and death in heaven and any casual viewer will just say oh great cybermen walking down the steps of st paul's that looks brilliant whereas the fan will say and that's a reference back to it's not like in certain stories from the past where you had to know the events of x in order to understand why i've always said you know, on, on forums and that, people will say, oh, Omega's coming back. And other people will say, nobody in the audience is going to remember who Omega was from 40 mm. years ago. And my answer to that is they don't need to remember who he was because when the Three Doctors happened, nobody in the audience then knew who Omega was. You just put a line in explaining who Omega is and everybody's happy. That's all you'd have to do if you put Omega into a story now. You put in a line explaining who Omega is, and as long as your story doesn't relate so directly back to the Three Doctors that everybody watching would need to have seen the Three Doctors in order to understand it, it's all fine. You can bring anybody and anything back if you want to. Oh, that's exactly right. I think I think people uh, worry too much about you know bringing certain things back and uh, cluttering up the narrative, but as you say a judicious line here here or there will we'll, we'll fix that problem up and and the audience by and large is happy to be carried along uh, yeah. on that point and it's just a, it's just a a, a, a colorful uh, insert into that uh, into the main narrative 
Exactly. Look at the Pandorica Opens when it mentions things like, you know, the Dravins and the Chelonians. For fans sitting at home, that's like, wow, Galaxy 4, wow, the higher science or whatever the novel was. Mm. But for people who are just watching casually, they're just thinking these are exotic names of alien species. I don't think RTD would have made a mention to the Valyard in a pink fish. <laughs> yeah. Where Moffat slipped that in. But do you think there's a danger of uh, Moffat and his team getting a bit of uh, Levinitis where they start slapping on too much continuity? I don't think so, because like I said, you stick the names in and it just looks like exotic references to things that you're not supposed to know about. It's like with Russell T. Davis and all the times he talked about the Time War and he talked about, you know, the Medusa Cascade and the face of the child or I don't know what he did. He mm. put in loads of... Nightmare Child, yes. Nightmare Child, that's it. And he put in all these references and nobody in the audience were supposed to have seen the story from which those references happened. Stephen Moffat just does, does it with things that are actually from the past. But as long as you're just sticking references in rather than expecting your audience to understand what those references refer to, it's fine. It's just the same thing, except it provides a little bit more, you know, fan service for the people who do know about these things. The danger would be if you are making sequels to stories from the past rather than remakes of stories from the past and when I say remake it's not you know a page for page remake but you know Death in Heaven is essentially based upon the same story elements as the invasion was you can do that all you like as long as you're not excluding people who don't know the originals and I think I think actually Stephen Moffat treads a really really brilliant line between putting lots of stuff in to make fans smile and not alienating regular audiences with it. I think he does it in absolutely the right way. He doesn't make those references things that you need to know in order to understand the references. To casual fans, they really are just throwaway exotic names, as it were. If uh, Mr Moffat needs an indicator of how not to do continuity, just tell him to rewatch Attack of the Cybermen. <laughs> well, quite. I mean, Attack of the Cybermen almost works without you needing to know the events of the 10th planet and Tomb of the Cybermen and the invasion. But the trouble is, it's so heavy. I think what well, the problem with Attack of the Cybermen is not so much that it was a, a sequel to the Tomb of the Cybermen, but that because it also wanted to be a sequel to the invasion and it wanted to be a sequel to the 10th planet, it didn't have all at once. Yeah, it didn't have a consistency <laughs> yeah, yeah. of being a sequel to one thing. It, it just, it just felt like half a dozen different stories all trying to fight for space within the narrative. Do you know what I mean? It, mm. it didn't have any consistency. Maybe the script editor need to have a chat to the author about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that can be the problem, can't it? But that's the criticism with Stephen Moffat is that he doesn't have anybody to sort of tell him when to stop when you know to say no to him and that's you know i suppose the biggest criticism of his showrunnership when you get right down to it especially as classic series fans in the old days the script editor and the producer worked quite uh closely together and they had that checks and balances almost mm. where they could float ideas and things would get get okayed or vetoed where i don't think at the moment and this same could be saying to rtd the script editor role has just been uh i think reduced just to photocopying papers and fact checking basically yeah yeah fact checking on the time war where if i look at death in heaven i'll be honest if i look at some of those scripts in that season i think they could have done with that oh what are you doing i mean even the end of the end of pantomime copyright rob lloyd on that quote 
But that could have definitely needed another edit on that. Which one, sorry? The end of time. I call it end of pantomime stuff. <laughs> right, fair enough. Do you know, the thing is, though, Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat are both answerable to, you know, the controller of BBC One, the controller of drama. And the controller of BBC One is taking a much greater interest in Doctor Who these days than they were back in the 1980s. So essentially, the person in charge of putting the TV programme on the channel is acting as their sounding board. If the BBC had been unhappy with Death in Heaven, Stephen Moffat would never have finished the script let alone would it have gone into production. You know, he ran those ideas by his boss before he probably even put pen to paper. Could we say that Moffat gets away with more than what we would like in terms of the scripts? But I mean, I've just toted up a, a list of, of writers that he's, you know, who have written for him. I mean, like writers like Mark Gaddis or Neil Cross or Toby Whithouse. These are people who've, you know, show run shows themselves. Yeah. So it's it's not as if Moffat has you know hired on serfs who will do his bidding. These are no. people who've created shows or run shows. So it's it's a meeting of equals essentially. Of course, it's it's you know Moffat is the showrunner, but it's not as not as if he's sort of cracking the whip over people who'll say yes or no. I mean, these these are people who've got experience in writing themselves. Exactly. No, but who's vetting Stephen's stuff apart from the BBC controller? <laughs> well, well, yeah. You, who's above the but BBC that... controller mark? Is it God? I mean, I don't think you have to worry too much about that. It's the that. director general, isn't it? No, no, no. no. Um, I think it's currently uh, is it Ben Stevenson or Will Cohen? But they both have input on what happens. Happens. Is it Will Cohen or I don't know? I may have got the names wrong. At least I'm not falling asleep like in playbacks like Powell used to do. No, absolutely not. Well, this is the thing. Doctor Who is such a big thing for the BBC now, as you know, particularly with the amount of sales abroad, that the BBC themselves are going to be all over every decision that's made in order to make sure that Doctor Who still reaches their expectations and still continues to sell abroad. You know, Death in Heaven, like I said right back when we started talking about it it might not be an episode that works in a Doctor Who fan sense but it's more of an Mm. episode that works in a general public want to see sort of you know resolution for the characters sense and that's what whoever it is Ben Stevenson or whoever will have said when they looked at Stephen Moffat's ideas yeah I like where you're taking this story this story being all 12 episodes of series 8 I like where you're taking this story, go ahead and take it there. JR, you're closer to the action than us. Given the state where the BBC finds itself at the moment, how important is Doctor Who to it as a sense of what the BBC stands for, a money spinner, morale within the BBC? It's probably even more important than people think looking from the outside that, you know, Doctor Who sells to X amount of countries and it's not necessarily so much the Doctor Who sells to those countries and I don't know what the situation is so I can I can only uh, you know speculate here but oftentimes when you have a product that does well what you'll do is you'll piggyback products that don't necessarily do so well onto the back of it if Doctor Who is selling to South Korea for example the BBC might say to South Korea right you can have Doctor Who for X Or, for X plus a tiny little bit more, you can have Doctor Who plus six other programmes that we think you'll enjoy. And Korea might well say, well, that fills in X amount of more, uh, you know, broadcasting hours, 
for just a tiny little bit more money and we are enjoying Doctor Who so the chances are we will enjoy these other things as well and so Doctor Who essentially becomes and I don't know whether that actually happens but even if that doesn't happen specifically places like South Korea will say we like Doctor Who what else have you got Doctor Who works as a kind of a, a steam train on which all sorts of other things that would probably be completely ignored in places like this can get a foothold into these markets. So actually Doctor Who isn't just doing well for the BBC in terms of the revenue it brings back in specific to Doctor Who, but it's actually bringing back in revenues from other programs as well purely because of the fact that people do like it so much and they will take it in these places and that happens all over the world i don't know how many markets doctor who's in now but something like 90 or 100 markets that's 90 or 100 markets that will potentially buy something like jonathan strange and mr norrell that you know if doctor who hadn't been doing so well probably would have completely ignored it so in a sense doctor who is a gateway drug for other bbc programs around the world Exactly, it really is. And so, and so, you know, every time people throw their arms in the air and say, oh my God, Doctor Who's taken a year off, it could be the end, you know, it won't come back as popular as it is now. Or every time, you know, an, an episode of Doctor Who comes in with 20,000 fewer viewers, you know, not to worry. Doctor Who mm. is doing far more than just picking up viewers and selling itself to various foreign markets. It's doing that for everything else the BBC produces as well. But people who are throwing, as you say, throwing their arms up and worried that the show will take a year off or not come back. Is it? Is it more these days new series fans who are who are upset about the notion, or is it is it classic series fans who are scarred by the eighties? Well, that's interesting. I think it's probably mostly classic series fans. I think I think news. Well. Obviously, nobody wants there not to be any Doctor Who, right? Mm. Even if just for yeah. a year, whatever. Or nobody wants there to be less Doctor Who in that year than there might ordinarily be. And so that goes for new series fans and classic series fans. But I think with the classic series fans, the worry is more that it's a sign that the horizon's not quite as rosy as it might once have been. Whereas for new series fans, I think it purely is just, oh, if we're only going to have three episodes next year... That means that's nine fewer than I would have liked to have seen. Whatever. Mm. I think there's a. I think there's a. Obviously, they're both going to react badly to it, but I think there's a difference in the reasons for the reaction, probably. But I mean, if it's a question of just recharging batteries or resetting, I mean, less now might mean more later. Yeah, exactly. I think people underestimate how good a job Stephen Moffat's doing. That you might not necessarily like all the stories, and you, and some people might not like any of the stories that he makes. But what Stephen Moffat has done, in the same way as Patrick Troughton did this in 1966, Stephen Moffat has made it possible for Doctor Who to be an ongoing thing. It's no secret now that the BBC were prepared to knock it on the head when David Tennant left. And mm. Russell T Davis persuaded them that actually, why not let Stephen Moffat have a go and see how it does? And it's doing better now than it was then, you know, in a yeah. in a sort of global way. So actually, Stephen Moffat, and he's not just done this with Doctor Who, Stephen Moffat has also made a massive success of Sherlock that demonstrates not just to the BBC that he's not a one-trick pony, but also demonstrates to the world at large that the BBC itself is not a one-trick pony, uh, regardless of whether it's Stephen Moffat who's involved in both programmes or not. So what Stephen Moffat's done is he has secured longevity for Doctor Who. 
It may have been, after Russell T Davis that a few figures had tailed off, the BBC would have said, right, Moffat, you've had a couple of years, you've failed, we're cancelling the programme. What Stephen Moffat's done now is open the door for the third showrunner and the fourth showrunner and the fifth showrunner because it's been demonstrated to the BBC that it wasn't Russell T Davis who made it a massive success. It was the programme that made itself a massive success and that other people can do it just as well as Russell T Davis can. So I think, you know, in spite of the fact that because it could come back and be a massive success, that was a demonstration that Doctor Who as an idea was a great idea. I think by showing that the idea can carry on with successive showrunners rather than it comes back and then it goes away again and it comes back and it goes away again. I think you've demonstrated that the programme can just carry on without needing to take those breaks. When Stephen is wheeled away, <laughs> what do you think? What do you think? I think it's uh... more a case. Sorry, just to butt in, I think it's more a case of, you know, the BBC are persuading Stephen Moffat to stay with Doctor Who than Stephen Moffat can't be prized away from it, if I'm going to be completely honest. It sounds familiar. Well, I mean, Stephen Moffat, you've just said it there in the question. Stephen Moffat had a three-film deal with, with Steven Spielberg and Peter Jackson to write the three Tintin movies, and he turned down two of those movies and the final rewrite on the first one in order to do Doctor Who. Mm. So there's no reason to suppose that, you know, it's a case of him staying there and the BBC trying to get rid of him. Stephen Moffat must get job offers every single day of the week. So, you know, it's not like if he doesn't feel his job's done, uh, if the BBC wanted to get rid of him, I don't think he'd have a problem with saying, yeah, you're right, I've done enough of this, I've got offers for ten times the money to do movies. I think what might happen is that the BBC might ask him to come up with another idea for them, so I don't think necessarily he'll go back to movies. An original idea. Yeah, yeah. I think these days... There's as much cachet in well-received television as there is in movies. And while there might be not mm. quite as much money, I think there's enough money because, you know, the law of supply and demand suggests that the BBC aren't paying Stephen Moffat, you know, the same amount as they're paying, you know, somebody who runs a, a programme with half a million viewers on BBC Two at three o'clock in the afternoon. You know what I'm saying? Stephen Moffat is getting paid for the job he does. And if... The BBC can find him, you know, can find enough money to make sure you've got people like Stephen Moffat staying in that job when they could easily go and do something else. BBC are going to be able to find enough money to make it worth Stephen Moffat's while, at least thinking about coming up with another idea for television rather than going off and doing movies. I think this is a slightly different situation to the one that Russell T Davis was in because I think Russell T Davis had proved only that he could do Doctor Who, you know. Not in terms of his wider career. He'd obviously proven he could do other things as well. But in terms of what some, you know, movie production company is going to look at Stephen, uh, Russell T. Davis and say, well, what can he do? Because Doctor Who is his single big success. Whereas with Stephen Moffat, he not only has Doctor Who, but he does have the first Tintin movie and he does have Sherlock. So he has shown to the wider world that he does have that variety. So, yeah, I think the BBC would ask him to come up with another idea. And maybe it would be another 
you know, remake of a classic idea, or maybe it would be something totally brand new. But I think the BBC would definitely want to keep him, rather than let him go off and do something else instead. And it might be that if he does something more along the lines of Sherlock, which doesn't take up as much of his time as Doctor Who, he can do that for six months of the year, and then write a movie. So, you know, he gets the best of both worlds. I like him to do an original idea instead of riffing off Sherlock and Jekyll and, and even coupling to a sense as a rip-off of Friends. Yeah. I like him to, to prove us wrong. Prior to that, of course, he did Chalk and Joking Apart and Press Gang, which were all original ideas. Press Gang was successful, yeah. Chalk and Joking Apart less so. But actually, I think Joking Apart is a fantastic series, and Chalk's a pretty good series too. So I don't think there's any question that he can do other things. I suspect that Doctor Who, you, we Doctor Who is Doctor Who, and we know why he did Doctor Who because it's Doctor Who. I think Sherlock is perhaps, in terms of how we perceive. him, him as a writer i think sherlock is perhaps something that maybe in some ways he might regret because if he you know if sherlock came out of a conversation that he and mark gatis had on a train from london to cardiff one time when they said what if you did sherlock in the modern day i think sherlock would be just as successful if that character wasn't sherlock holmes in name i think it almost is an original idea to be frank and the fact that they're sort of remaking old Sherlock Holmes stories is kind of by the by. I think if you, the two characters they've come up with in Sherlock and and um, Watson are similar enough but removed enough from the originals that they could have got away with making that an original idea and just change those characters slightly and nobody would have bad an eyelid and it would be just as successful now. But I think the fact that it is Sherlock as kind of worked against Stephen Moffat in that it makes it look like he can only do other people's ideas whereas I don't think that's the case Prove us wrong Stephen, yeah. prove us wrong That was actually the first question <laughs> Yeah, we better get down to your list now <laughs> We'll wrench the, uh, the discussion uh, to a different direction. We all love the adventure in space and time docu- docudrama, and the yeah. trailer for a smaller budget Tom Baker version has recently hit the internet. Uh, yeah. What period of the show's history would each of you most like to see get a full budget docudrama made? Or do we want to talk about the uh, the smaller budget Tom Baker version first? Well, I don't know a huge amount about it. I know it's completely independent. Basically, it's a sort of, I don't know if it is Kickstarter, but it's a Kickstarter type thing, isn't it? Not too sure. I think it's something that's completely independent of anybody and anything, and I don't think there's even any deal for it to be shown on telly or shown in the pictures or anything, uh, you know, until it gets done. So, but the actors they've got in it, I think, are fairly reasonable. So I think once it does get finished, I think there's a chance maybe it could do the convention circuit or something like that and Mm. maybe get some kind of... uh, a release on DVD or on some kind of video on demand service. I'm not sure. I think it's an interesting enough idea. I don't necessarily think it's a particularly brilliant period of the program to have taken to tell a story about because it's a success story, isn't it? And I don't think it's one with a huge amount of dilemma or drama inherent in the success that happened. You know, and obviously to answer the wider question, I think telling the story of the 1980s would have been a fascinating subject in fact a friend and i 
wrote a, or started to work on a treatment for a version of, sort of a version of Richard Marson's book about JNT that was going to be told in a completely different way, in a very Channel 4 way, I should say. And a friend of mine worked on some ideas for a treatment for that that didn't really go anywhere. But yeah, I, that is, it goes without saying, that's probably the most interesting sort of period of the programme in terms of drama and dilemma, which is what you need if you're going to tell a story that you're expecting people to engage with. And the effect on one man's career after it as well. I mean, when you read yeah. Marsden's book, it's really, really sad. Absolutely. So on a side note, I'm not especially fond of an adventure in space and time. I mean, I think it's a brilliant little piece of nostalgia, but I don't think it especially works as a story because I think, I don't think there is quite enough drama in it. When... There were rumours years and years ago that Mark Gatiss had already offered it to the BBC and the BBC had turned it down. My thought at the time was, you know, as much as I would like to have seen it, my thought at the time was, I'm not surprised they turned it down because there's not really a story there. And I think Gatiss really had to struggle hard in order to make it a story. You know, to make it the story of William Hartnell, I suppose. You know, it doesn't lend itself particularly well to a casual audience in that basically for 90 minutes you're watching people making a television program which isn't necessarily the most interesting thing for a casual audience to watch i think the timing of it obviously uh helped in terms of the 50th anniversary year as well well yeah yeah absolutely because i know in the 90s early 90s that kevin davies pitched an idea a similar idea i think with pete Postlewaite as the first doctor yeah yeah the problem with the letter is i saw the trailer if it was made in the 90s in the wilderness years, I think they would have got away with it. But because it looks, unfortunately from the production values point of view, we've seen Adventure in Space at the time, we're going to unfairly compare it to that. Yeah. Look, I had a bit of a smirk when I saw it. I've watched it a couple of times. The budget of it will colour people's judgments to it unfairly. It's going to be one of those things, isn't it, when mm. it comes out. But Plus, the other thing is, in a trailer, you when you're making a trailer, you try to pull out moments that you think are going to sell it. Mm. to, you know, a, a, an audience of some kind. But actually what you're doing is you're taking, generally speaking, you're taking the slightly more histrionic moments because they're the moments of drama and you're sticking in them into the trailer without a lot of context. So certain things like, for example, the guy playing Tom Baker, you're not getting a fair representation of the portrayal that's going to be in the film from the trailer because, you know, they've deliberately picked out moments that are unrepresentative of the whole. So a trailer like that can kind of work against your project in some ways. And maybe you're right. Maybe in this case it has. I did watch the trailer, but it was a while ago. Maybe I saw an earlier trailer or something, but I think it was like maybe about six months ago. So I barely remember it, to be honest. Well, it's on our Twitter feed if we never look at it again. Oh, is it? Yeah, I'll probably take another look now. I think Adventure in Space and Time's problem from a story sense or a drama sense is that, as you say, it, it's the beginning of it is the, is the making of a TV show. Yeah. But the, the, the drama, I suppose, if the, in it really is about Hartnell, Hartnell's rise and Hartnell's fall. And they come to that a little bit too late. Exactly. There's not enough in the William Hartnell story to cover the entire 90 minutes. So halfway through the movie, it has to change from being one story to being another story. So if there's not enough drama in there, in that story to last the whole 90 minutes, what you're essentially saying is there isn't enough drama in that story. And so, and so although I think he, you know, Mark Gatiss 
bent over backwards to make it work. And for fans, it's successful because it's a lovely evocation of what was happening. I think in the wider terms, as a piece of drama, you know, and this is why it didn't win the awards that everybody was hoping it would win. As a piece of drama, I just don't think it's there, to be honest. Mark? Actually, I was going to plumb for the 80s as well. Yeah. I'd probably start it from... Uh, 1985 onwards, so just before the cancellation. Or 1984, Warriors of the Deep, perhaps. We could have a remake of that. <laughs> Who would we cast as Ingrid Pitt, uh, Karate Chopping America? I think you should get Janet Fielding back to play Ingrid Pitt. <laughs> Catch as you could, just peroxide her hair. <laughs> Take this, you bloody America. Yeah. Warriors of the Deep was apparently the story that... Um... Michael Greatsaw. Yeah, yeah. So I think your pre-title sequence would be Michael Grade turning on the telly and seeing Janet Fielding as Ingrid Pitt karate kicking a pantomime monster <laughs> and turning to his wife and saying, what the is that doing on my television? Gonna get rid of it if that's the last thing I do. That sort of thing. Cue theme. And then just have, uh, you know, the cancellation and also focus the drama on JNT's slide through his non-career and, and uh, unfortunate death. Yeah, you'd have... Actually, you'd start with John Nathan Turner and Eric Sayward being the best of buddies, riding on a, riding on a wave of success. Mm. And then you'd mm. cut to Michael Grade sitting in his living room watching Warriors of the Deep. Then you'd go into the music. And as you come out of the music, you start with, I was going to say an email arriving, a telephone call where John Nathan Turner picks up the telephone. You know, you can hear Michael Grade's voice, although you can't hear what he's saying, in John Nathan Turner's ear. And John Nathan Turner's face is just dropping further mm. and further and further. And Eric Sayward's just looking at him with a what the F expression on his face. And that's the start of your story. That's why I would start at. Uh... Uh, right at the very end of the fo- the success of the five doctors you know you'd have a, a champagne bottle going off yeah and uh and then people in the background you know recognizable people who are in the five doctors and it's two minutes of aren't we wonderful that the show's just celebrated 20 years and then you'd go straight into the telephone call yeah well because warriors of the deep is obviously the very next story after the five mm. doctors isn't it it writes itself yes. the only other period i think might be interesting enough, and I don't think it is interesting enough, but, you know, so I'm just throwing it out there as a further example. The Graham Williams years, with all the strikes and the inflation and with Tom Baker's ego running out Mm. of control, telling a story about a character, because by all accounts, Graham Williams is this really lovely guy who gets thrown in at the deep end with something that he thought was going to be a godsend and that ended up being an absolute nightmare. Mm. Possibly... There's a story to be told there too. And again, unfortunate uh, ending at the end. Well, absolutely, yeah. Mm. And he ended up running a hotel about 15 yes. miles from where I live. Okay, yeah. yeah. Although I didn't know that until after he died, sadly. You were going to ask me, Mark. Thank you. Yeah. What, what about <laughs> sorry, you, Rob? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's all right. Well, I was going to put aside the big budget pretensions. And I had I had thought if you were going to do something small, maybe just a two-hander, uh, you would do. I would. I was thinking maybe the the the, the relationship between Tom Baker and Louise Jamison, where Tom yeah. Baker is riding high, has uh, has um, uh, the lady who plays uh, Sarah Jane Smith, whose name has just escaped me, Liz um, Sladen, Liz, Liz riding high and she leaves, and then he's suddenly faced with someone else. So you've got this two-hander where there's mu- there's suspicion on one hand, and uh, it, the relationship collapses, and then it just it's it's built back up. So maybe a little two-hander theatre piece i don't know that's good yeah 
or you know if you're talking really low budget sort of you know nicely made and nicely written but low budget fan made productions perhaps Terence Dix and Malcolm Hulk writing the war games against all odds something like that yeah, yeah you know good. I suppose there are a lot of things and this is one of the reasons why we get so involved in the program there are a lot of things in the series history where interesting enough things have happened that our interest is peaked, but probably wouldn't be interesting enough for an actual TV drama. No, that's right. And the mention of Terence Dix and Malcolm Hulk takes us to our next question mark. It does. <laughs> Beautiful segue. So the Target novels were a huge part of us growing up as fans. So assuming that the uh, following authors that we're going to read out are all alive and well, what New Who stories would you like these particular authors, uh, writers' Target novels? Wow. So I'll read you out the list. Terran Sticks, Malcolm Hulk, John Peel, Ben Aranovich, and Pippin Jane Baker. Jesus. Well, uh... Well, I could put Jesus oh as an author God. as well if he wants to. <laughs> well, this is definitely one that you need to think about, isn't it? Um, Terrence Sticks. Terrence Sticks is... I tell you what, Terrence Sticks is quite good with the kind of romp that has a bit of fan service in it. Yeah. Um, you know, something like Horror of Fang Rock, which while not necessarily referencing the past of Doctor Who, is very ostentatiously pleasing Doctor Who. You know, he throws in a bunch of characters, and I'm talking about, you know, his script writing as opposed to his novel writing now, but when when you're adapting the novels, you sometimes try and heighten this particular aspect of it. In Doctor Who and the Autumn Invasion, he sort of embraces the characters and, you know... uh, not necessarily makes caricatures of them, but in the same way as he puts a lot of sort of archetypes into Horror of Fang Rock, this is kind of what he emphasises when he does his better novels. He sort of emphasises the archetypes. So you'd want something where you have kind of archetypes, not necessarily caricatures, but sort of heightened characters in something that presents a story that fans themselves will embrace. You know, the obvious one that's screaming out is Day of the Doctor, but actually, perhaps Time of the Doctor, Terence Dick's doing Time of the Doctor, might turn that into a story that, uh, you know, a certain kind of fan would say, oh, actually, I can see what was going on there after all. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm. So Terence Dick's Time of the Doctor, Malcolm Hulk, it would have to be something with politics in it, wouldn't it? World War Three. <laughs> I was just going to say, you're going to think of this as a completely mad suggestion, but Aliens of London, World War Three. Yeah. Farting aliens taking over London for political and financial ends, and plenty of scope for... Uh, Malcolm Hulk to uh, expand upon the characterizations. I think Malcolm Hulk would have a whale of a time with Aliens of London. Why not? Yeah, stick him down for that one. Would he take out the farting, you think? I think he would write it in such a way that it might not necessarily be as obvious that it was farting. But lest we not forget, this is the man who put a prologue into the novelization of Invasion of the Dinosaurs that had a Scotsman running around absolutely stone cold drunk after a football match. Ah, so yes. it's not as if it's not as if Malcolm Hulk's averse to doing sort of popular culture type things. I don't think he'd have a problem with the farting, to be honest. Any others, JR? 
Okay, now I'm forgetting the names. Pip and Jane Baker was one, wasn't it? Pip and it? Jane Baker as well. And I'm going to add another one in, actually. Ian Martyr. Oh, yeah. Overlooked. Ian Martyr. Yeah. Well, Ian Martyr, something like the Satan Pit. Yeah. Because Ian Martyr was well... You know, look at his novelization of The Ark in Space. Something like The Impossible Planet and the Satan Pit would be a shoo-in for the guy who wrote that novelization, wouldn't it? Yeah, mm. absolutely. So... And what were the other two names before you got to... Uh... John Peel? Oh, I see John Peel likes the really continuity-heavy stuff, doesn't he? Well, John Peel, you would want to give something like the end of time, I suppose. Because you wouldn't want him to mess up something that you actually enjoyed, would you? <laughs> <laughs> so, no offence intended, but, you know, his Dalek stories from the New Adventures aren't... or they're, yeah, the BBC uh, the, ones. Um, yeah. Eighth Doctor Adventures, yeah, aren't especially well regarded, are they? Although I actually, the, I think the only one of his that's new fiction that I've read is his um, very first one, the uh, oh, Time Worm term one. one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Time yeah. Worm, yeah. And I thought that was, I thought that was rather good actually. Mm. And I've read Power of the Daleks, but I don't think I've read Evil of the Daleks. And I thought Power of the Daleks was fine as well. So actually, maybe he'd make a silk purse out of a pig's ear. With the end of time, mm. Pip and Jane Baker. Yeah, no, you also had Ben Aronovich. Yeah, oh yes, and you'd want him to do something with a bit of continuity, but that you actually liked, wouldn't you? <laughs> so, well, actually, it's not necessarily continuity heavy, but actually, what it is is thread heavy. Something like the Time of Angels. Oh yeah, because Time of Angels is something that comes in the middle that ties things up from before and after it. So it's one of those ones that has threads going through the story that somebody like Ben Aronovich could expand into the stories that they lead out of and lead into in a way that feels more natural than simply. And the reason why we've got these uh, cracks in time is because we've seen them in the 11th hour. You know what I mean? He'd yeah. make it something that was subtle and that read nicely. Pip and Jane Baker, I think, are underrated. You know, if I'm going to be completely honest, they get a lot of stick. I think Mark of the Rani is probably the Sixth Doctor's best story. And I think they get a lot of stick for sticking intelligent dialogue into intelligent characters' mouths that I think is completely undeserved. Why wouldn't intelligent characters have intelligent dialogue? So, for Pip and Jane Baker, I think you'd want something that's fairly upmarket. So, do you know what? I'm going to throw in The Girl Who Waited. Mm. which is completely out of left field. But Girlie Waited is kind of a classic science fiction idea. And I think what Pip and Jane Baker were trying to do, and were perhaps being undermined by the production, I think they were trying to do classic science fiction. And I think they don't get enough credit for that. If you look at Time and the Rani, everybody remembers you know, the performances and some of the production decisions. But actually the idea of somebody who has a lack of morals not immoral but amoral somebody who's not looking at it from a moral perspective who says right what happens when you take great brains and you sort of splice the dna together to try and make the greatest brain it's not a million miles away in terms of it being a science fiction idea from something like the girl who waited so maybe give pip and jane baker something like the girl who waited so is tom and the Rani's problems in production is that what you're saying yeah i think so and i and i think the script counts as production in that they weren't it's not just that they didn't know which doctor they were writing it for 
because that's just a tiny thing. You know, that's what people always focus on. Pip and mm. Jane Baker wrote Time and the Rani when they didn't know which doctor they were writing it for. That's not the problem with Time and the Rani. Pip and Jane Baker wrote Time and the Rani without any script editing. You know, it's yeah. often been said that John Nathan Turner's great expertise was not scripts. When you edit a script, and I just funnily enough have been doing some of this myself yesterday for a book that's going to be on the horizon at some point in the future, you don't just say to somebody, what's your idea for a story? Like I was saying about an hour ago when we started this, you say to somebody, what's your idea? And then you discuss with that person how you turned that idea into a story, where you set it, what kind of characters you have. I'm always saying on our podcast that all the plot lines must come out of the original idea and must all be in service to it. And with something like Time and the Rani, the problem is not that Pip and Jane's plot lines aren't in service to Pip and Jane's idea, but that nobody on the production staff was able to say to Pip and Jane Baker, right, that's your idea and we like it, but this is the angle we need you to take on it in order to make it tie in with everything else that's going to be going on. So without an angle, it's an idea just sort of flailing around in a universe of its own. That's the big problem with Time and the Rani. Not that the Doctor was going to be Sylvester McCoy, but that Pip and Jane Baker had no idea what kind of story that anybody on the production staff wanted them to write. And Cartmel didn't have the uh, script editing experience to sort of come in and start throwing his weight around, really. He had to sort of bide his time, get it over and done with, and then start influencing the rest of that series. Exactly. I think the trouble I think the trouble probably was that by the time Andrew Cartmel's in, John Nathan Turner's already decided he likes Pip and Jane Baker's script. Mm. So I think so I think it's not perhaps so much that Andrew Cartmel wouldn't have been able to and had he had more experience, I think he probably would. I don't think it was a problem between Cartmel and Pip and Jane Baker so much as it was a problem between Cartmel and J and T but that Cartmel probably saw as being a problem with Pip and Jane Baker from his perspective of where he was sitting at the time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it was John Nathan Turner's call to make, and he yeah. should have probably made that call, but that he didn't have the understanding of storytelling that Andrew Cartmel would have had, you know, given another six months in the job. What other books, uh, Rob, would you like to see uh, tackled by old novelists to new series stories? Well, I would have thought that Tooth and Claw would have been right up Terence Dick's alley. Um, yeah. If, we, if, we yeah. Look, if we're looking at a you know a sort of a closed location with archetypes or, or, or readily recognisable characters, um, I would have gone with uh, say Tooth and Claw or maybe even Midnight if you if you do something like that. Uh, again, Malcolm Hulk is overtly political, so um, if if there's nothing else more political than say. Uh, World War Three and uh, Aliens of London. Well, it's hard to go past those stories, I suppose. But no, I, I would I would I would agree with most of what JR said there about the, those particular stories or those writers paired with those particular stories. I mean, Terence 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 Dix or Ben Aronovich could easily have done say Day of the Doctor as well. Uh, yeah, because yeah. I think that just sort of there, there's enough going on in there that would suit their their talents, especially the world building angle. I mean, if you look, if you read say Ben Aronovich's uh, uh, recent series of books, I think started starting with um, Rivers of London, where he's he sort of built uh, a reality out of you know out, out of virtually nothing, an urban fantasy series. I mean, I think that would sort of sit well with um, with working on something like Day of the Doctor. Yes, absolutely. You've contributed to um, uh, just to go off topic, Jr. An anthology called I think it's. Uh, is it Theatre Diab- Diabolique? Oh, Diabolique, yeah. Yes. Theatre Diabolique, yes. Yeah, what's that all about? Tell us a bit about that. 
Well, it's uh, it was it's one of these sort of um, unlicensed charity sort of unofficial books um, that Dan Barrett did because Dan Barrett is a fan of the sort of portmanteau horror movies of the sort of 60s and 70s. And he kind of wanted to do a book that I think this came about because of the 12 Doctors of Christmas that Simon and Lee did um, the year before. And I think that kind of gave the impetus for this to happen. Dan Barrett kind of wanted to do a sort of portmanteau horror film type story in the form of a uh, of a book so what you've got is um six or seven individual stories wrapped around by a story that sort of threads through them and sort of ties up at the end so it's it's basically i think it's seven short stories of which six are self-contained and the seventh uh <laughs> which is not told in a singular narrative but throughout the course of the book that seventh story is the one that ties them all up together at the end and the, and so therefore with their six individual stories all we had to do was try and look at the idea of a portmanteau story and tell a story that was individual but that involved a specific thing that would be part of the ongoing narrative and just to say what my own particular take on it was i looked at what I remembered of those portmanteau stories of the 70s. And what I got from those was, as often as not, what you'd get is a sort of everyman character, normal guy of the 70s, to whom all these things would happen. For example, in the Monster Club, which actually I think is very early 80s, but is the last best example of this, it's about a man who goes into a a bar thinking he's just going to have a drink and it turns out he's accidentally wandered into a bar for uh, werewolves and vampires and stuff and so yeah. and so there are three sort of standalone stories about werewolves and vampires but the ongoing narrative is about what happens to this guy when he gets into the bar and so my story in Theater Diabolique is about an ordinary guy to whom extraordinary things happen but but a but a very very modern day ordinary guy rather not somebody not a 1970s style ordinary guy a very modern ordinary guy to whom extraordinary things happen and was your inspiration for that story a single idea or image or or, or yeah what, what was the inspiration for your particular story i can't actually say because the inspiration for my story <laughs> is the twist at the end of the story ah okay yeah fair enough, fair enough. um it's very difficult yeah no, that's all right. it would be very difficult for me to it's 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 kind of mundane, let's put it that way, mm -hmm. but but becomes extraordinary. Oh, we don't want to spoil it for the future readers, which will be be myself uh, when I get, get paid this week. I'm going to order a copy. Oh, good. So I look forward to it. So I'm the odd man out here because I actually haven't edited a book or put a book together, but both <laughs> of you gentlemen have. So uh, can you tell us about uh, this? Goes to yourself, Jr. and Rob. Tell us about your. Uh, your approaches to sourcing and, and editing and putting a book together. For a number of years, I've been um, uh, editing and writing for um, a fiction line, uh, the Doctor Who Project, uh, which is run out of uh, Canada by a fellow named Bob Fernell. And uh, that's that. The the the, the premise of, of all that is it, it continues the Doctor Who from uh, season twenty seven. Uh, the first series of stories was uh, was McCoy, and then it branches off into its its own Doctors, and it's been going on for about a decade, I think. I, I can't remember. So I got roped, not roped in, I volunteered to do some editing and, uh, and I've written a number of novellas for it and all that sort of thing. And, and then latterly, uh, Bob asked me to, if I wanted to 
help edit the range because it is a lot of work as I later yeah. discovered. Uh, and, and you know, a lot of people, the, the more hands involved, uh, it just makes the burden lighter for everyone. So Bob uh, came up uh, with the idea of doing uh, an anthology uh, of the first 12 Doctors, excluding the War Doctor. I, I don't think Bob was a big fan of the idea of the War Doctor. It's his book, that's fair enough. And, and, and the way we, uh, the great thing about the internet and social media is um, that you can just basically go out on Twitter or go onto the forums and say, look, we're, we're doing an anthology. It will be for charity as this one was. I think it was uh, raising money for HIV AIDS uh, research. And I think it's been very successful in doing that. And we, so you put a call out and uh, this is the premise of the book. Uh, you know, send us in a writing sample because we don't want people to go to the trouble of actually writing a story and sending it in to us only to be rejected. So we asked for submissions and we, we received about 112 submissions, which blew us all away. There was me, a fellow named Jez and Bob who were going to be doing all the, all the checks, all the filtering. Yeah. And we received 112 submissions. And uh, so what we did basically was um, had a checklist, you know, we, we read through the submissions and thought, all right, easily this, we, we, can't, we can't work with that, unfortunately. Uh, we broke it down to a probably maybe 20 or 30 story lines that we thought were, were worth pursuing. And, you know, we, we sent back to those people and, uh, and asked them to uh, send us a bit of a treatment, uh, you know, maybe one or two pages. And we got those back. And, and then we broke it down even further. And uh, it was a long process because obviously we've all got full-time jobs or, you know, we've got other things outside of Doctor Who that we have to, you know, <laughs> keep up with doing. But in the end, we, we got it down to about, uh, well, obviously 12 stories. Well, it was originally 11 stories because we weren't going to have the Capaldi Doctor in it. But then uh, it got to the point where we thought we had enough time to uh, ask someone who had written for, for Bob before to, to write a story. And, and she came through with Flying Colours. So the process itself from beginning to end was probably six, well, maybe eight, eight to ten months. Um, and what we were looking for was just, you know, really good. I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously a very basic... Uh, <laughs> But we wanted really good stories from each of the doctors, and uh, there's—I mean, I have my favourites within the within those, and there was a couple of stories there that I thought maybe we should have uh, used another one. But you know, we had a vote, and two out of three wins. But that's fair enough. I mean, I'm, I'm happy with the stories that are in it, but uh, there's 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 a few in there that I'm I'm really proud that we've got in there because the the, the level of writing on, on on them overall is very good. But there's two or three stories that uh, I particularly liked are of very high quality and. In actual fact, I hope these particular writers, uh, and I can't name them because I don't want to be, appear to be favouring anyone, but I hope these a couple of these writers actually go on and 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 uh, and and write something else other than effectively fan fiction. Yeah. But uh, it was a it was a tiring, rewarding experience. Um, there's a reason why I'm not doing it again because it just takes up too much time, but uh, a lot of fun and and the sales have been decent enough to make it make it have been worthwhile and it got a 10 out of 10 in starburst well that's right it got a 10 out of 10 by the, the reviewer in starburst thank you Joe. So. no that's a jr <laughs> yes it wasn't me you fool you fool <laughs> and what about your approach jr well obviously the thing i'm known for is non-fiction the you and who line of books although actually i have a fiction one that's on the horizon as well i'm think my approach because this is obviously quite a different kind of a thing because you're not looking to tell a narrative as it were as Dan was looking to do with Theater Diabolique and as if you're doing a 12 Doctor's stories you're obviously in spite of the fact that it's 12 standalone stories you want a certain kind of a narrative even if it's only the sort of way that the people approach the Doctor's character or something you know 
your your first doctor story in that book and your 12th doctor stories in that that book have to have an element of the start or the finish about them or whatever you know what i mean mm. whereas with mine because i'm working non-fiction and because the you and who books are a different kind of thing and you know i'm also doing this book called hating to love and then there's this fiction one i i have on the horizon as well i like variety but at the same time as liking variety you also need a consistency of approach and a consistency of tone so what i like to do is give people their wings but but at the same time make sure the idea is clear enough that when they take off and fly off in their own direction they're taking off and flying off in their own direction from a place that's in common with everybody else who's working on the same book the same project so all the you and who essays although some people interpret you know i've deliberately not specified too heavily what they need to write about but most people know exactly what the central quality of their essay would need to be so they kind of take that as a starting place and go off and write all sorts of different kinds of essays really but usually with common themes throughout the entire book so that the you and who books are kind of anybody who's reading those books can recognize themselves in the essays but we'll also find something unique about the essays that makes them worth reading. Do you know what I mean? And that is the same thing from one essay to another. So I kind of, I like, so I'd say my approach is to give people a, a very firm foundation from which to go off and do their own thing. And usually people will come back and what they've done has understood that approach enough that, you know, it, to edit it to go in the book, Rob will tell you, it's actually quite a lot of work on sort of really sort of pernickety things. I spend a lot of my time rewriting sentences without really changing what the sentence means, but to try and have a consistency of approach throughout the book so that the person reading it isn't constantly thrown by the different styles of the different people writing. Do you know what I mean? Just tiny little things. Yes. You know, I'll give you one example. The word among and the word amongst. Some people will use among and some people will use amongst. And what I will do is throughout, you know, this book's going to be about 750 pages. I've gone through all 750 pages and turned all the amongsts into amongs just so that the person reading it isn't constant because this is a subconscious thing but if you're reading it and one person's used among and another person's used amongst subconsciously you're flip-flopping in your head you what you don't realize is that you're if somebody's used amongst when you've been used to reading among mentally you've made a note of it you might not realize that mentally you've made a note of it but mentally when you've read that word you've made a note of the fact that the way it's been used has changed. And what I I feel my main job as an editor to do is to make sure that as somebody's reading through that book, they're not constantly making mental notes about irrelevant things. So part of my job is to make sure there's a consistency in the way the writing is laid down on the page that makes the actual message of people's essays easier for the reader to read without constantly being distracted even if subconsciously by other things and there have been two or three occasions where i've sent people's essays back and said look you've done a thing that i can't um edit in the rewriting 
that I need you to go back and redo your essay yourself, taking a different approach, because that thing is... And, you know, it wouldn't be a thing that was in any way sort of horrible, or that was an example of bad writing, but there would just be an example of something that, as I say, that consistency of approach throughout the book wouldn't allow for. So I've had to make them go back and take a different approach with it. And you self-publish your titles, don't you? I do now. They all had proper, you know, they were all properly published originally, but they fell out of print. And, you know, you could have, I could have spent months looking for another publisher and they could have had another small print run and then they'd have been out of print again. Or you just take advantage of the modern world and say, right, the modern world allows you to keep a book in print indefinitely you know, on a print-to-order service, what's the point in not taking advantage of the modern world? Mm. And because these books have been in print already prior to that, it means that already by the time they come back into print in a print-to-order service, you have a little bit of cachet that you wouldn't get if you were starting from scratch with a print-to-order service. So it's not like I've come out of nowhere with these books and people are sort of turning their nose up and saying, well, it's just vanity publishing. Because in actual fact, what it is, is not vanity publishing, but using the method of vanity publishing to keep something in print that actually people want to be in print. And part of the reason why they only had such small print runs in the first place was an accident of timing. The very first book, because it went through two different publishers, by the time it came out, the idea had already been used by a couple of other authors that it would have preceded had it come out when it was originally written and with the second book uh. yeah and with the second book the, the the contact has been made books they came out in the anniversary year and i think they were a terrific idea that would have done very well but for the fact that there was so much product around in that year that far fewer people bought them than probably wanted them so to have them you know constantly available so selling a trickle you know but but selling a trickle they're not just sitting there doing nothing people who do want them know that they can pick them up yeah. when they've got the money so and now that you've done that with books that were already available elsewhere and are now part of this imprint you can use that imprint to carry on the line with other books that those publishers may not necessarily have wanted but to have them all in one place on one website and you know, once they become published, they will be constantly available thereafter, you know, is a a nice way of keeping that line going and also being able to add to it with other kinds of books that are sort of generally within the same sort of field, but that wouldn't necessarily have been able to have been part of that line. To keep that sort of thing going and evolving and expanding and to be able to stay in control of that, you know, evolution and that expansion is a decent way of being able to stay on top of it and sort of maintain an idea of where you want that line to go. I'm giving ridiculously long answers to these questions, aren't I? No, it's fine. No, I wanted to talk about that tonight, actually, because you're doing, you know, editing and Rob's doing stuff as well. So um, use any opportunity to publicise it and we won't charge you, unlike uh, other websites. <clears throat> yeah, the less said about that, the better. Obviously, with uh, non-fiction writing and fiction writing, you want the, the writer to have their own voice. But in terms of your editorial work on it or editorial feedback, are you a, are you a light touch or a heavy touch? Or? Well, I think I'm, I'm both. With the fiction, this fiction one, I, I, this fiction one was planned to have started 
several months ago, but then uh, other things took over and I wasn't able to do it. So I've had to put it off till next year. But actually, because something else came up, I threw the idea out a couple of days ago to a few people and they've already come back with pictures for the book. And the pictures are obviously just, like I said, the idea. And what I've said to both of those people is, right, do this with your idea. So in some ways, having said do this, then I'm leaving them free to go off and tell the story in the way they want to. But I've kind of given them a sort of framework within which to tell that story, if you see what I mean. So in some ways, I'm a heavy touch. I've said, right, I want your story specifically to do this. But in other ways, I'm a light touch. And then I've said, in that I've said, and as long as it does that, you can do whatever else with it you want. So I guess a combination of the two. If you're going to have a selection of fiction there, and you'll know this from the book that you were talking about just now, you can't just let everybody go off and write completely what they want because it would just be a mess. That's right. I mean, uh, the approach that we took with uh, the the temporal logbook was, you know, just to tell a self-contained story. There was no thread uh, running through it, but, uh, you know, a beginning, a middle and an end, and then we'd we'd move off to the next story. But... um, I do know that with uh, the the general line, the Doctor Who project line, I, I felt sometimes like a bit like a Doctor Who producer, uh, not producer, script editor back in the '60s or the '70s, where you'd get a you'd get a story, and you'd basically have to rewrite it because it just and again I won't name names, it it it, it just wasn't up to scratch. Yeah. So I would find myself, uh, you know, I could have readily gone to to Bob and said, look. I've had to rewrite half of this or three quarters of this because it just doesn't come up to scratch. Now, in real life, as such, in publishing, you could you know, just basically reject that and say, look, no, uh, we'll move on to the next person because there's money involved. But with, with this, where it was sometimes difficult to get, uh, and this is not the anthology, but this is just the general line, sometimes it was just difficult to get enough stories for the, the, the season that you, yeah, were, yeah. you were working on. So sometimes you had to stay with that. And there are a number of stories uh, that I've basically... You know, when I finished editing them, there was a sea of red uh, of, of the edits, and, and most of the work is mine just to bring it up to what I thought was scratch anyway. But uh, but, then, but then, then then sometimes you'd get writers uh, who were just fantastic straight off the bat that you, you, you'd you be reading the story and you, there'd be nothing that you needed to change. There's an occasional misspelling mm. or the comma's wrong here, but the, 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 the writing itself, the level of the writing was of such a high level that it would be... You'd be almost insulting them to actually go back and change it because there's nothing to change. Well, there are a few examples, very few, because I think with this, knowing that the book's going to be in print by whatever means, I think people obviously bring their best game to it, don't they? And the Mm -hmm. other thing is a lot of people who have understood the idea and got on board with the idea, the kind of people who can write anyway, because that's what you're looking for, people who can write. So with you and who, very few essays I've had to rewrite, but over the years I have quite substantially rewritten one or two. Um, But yeah, the other thing about what you were saying, Rob, is that, you know, you had this book where there were going to be 12 stories and basically all you did was choose which 12 stories. But as part of choosing those 12 stories, you don't, for example, choose two in a row with Daleks in. Or if no, that's right. Uh, and that's if right. you have one that's got Daleks in that you think's too good not to include, but you've already got Daleks elsewhere, you might say to the person writing it, "I like your story, but don't use the Daleks." 
or something like that. And automatically, when you're doing that, you're making editorial choices that inform the narrative of the story you're telling. Even if you're not really conscious of the fact that you're doing it, you know, that's what's happening there. Well, that's right. I mean, we're doing we're doing a follow-up, a, a follow-up, uh, a ghost story anthology through the same publisher, and oh. there, there has been a bit of a bit more a bit more back and forth uh, with the writers uh, that we've accepted for their submissions, um, that their pitches. Uh, in a couple of instances, you've gone. the The idea is really good, and, and what we're what you're hoping to achieve, we think, will work. However, why don't you go this way, or why don't you go that way? Because uh, as presented, if they go in the way that they want, they are indicating, it, it won't match the the material that they're offering. They, they won't lead to the point where the, 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 they're hoping the material will take them. So, you you do give that, and as you are right, it is editorial feedback of, of that sort that. Uh, I think it is key because otherwise you're just going to have a mess. Enough self-indulgence. We'll move on to something. Another question. Uh, the other question is, um, and this was from Dave, wasn't it? Yeah, this Mark? is from Dave Kitchen. We outsource the questions like a conservative government. Oh. <laughs> so Dave's question was or is. I've often thought that when Moffat needlessly accelerated the Doctor's lifespan by two regenerations in the Matt Smith finale, he missed a trick. The Doctor we know always has in the back of his mind that he can regenerate, as does the audience. Imagine a 13th Doctor who thought that was no longer possible. Would it change him? Make him more cautious? Would it change the drama? No, I agree. I completely agree. And I think if Stephen Moffat had known that that was how it was going to end when he cast Matt Smith... He would have written the entirety of Matt Smith's tenure. Even if he hadn't said so out loud, he would have written the entirety of Matt's tenure as the Doctor with that thought in the back of his mind. But this is just what happens. Sometimes things happen on a production level that you have no control over and what your job becomes then is to mitigate against those circumstances in the best way of possible for a viewing audience. And the viewing audience that you're mitigating for aren't the fans. They're the regular viewers. You know, fans make up 0.01% of the people who are watching Doctor Who. So while Stephen Moffat could have said, right, we've got this situation where we can't get Christopher Eccleston in for the special, and yet we need that basic part represented in some way, while the fans would have said, put Paul McGann in there instead... Stephen Moffat looks at it and he says, yes, I could put Paul McGann in there or I could put John Hurt in there. And the controller of BBC One says, well, that's a no-brainer. You put John Hurt in there. So Stephen Moffat's job then becomes, what's the best way to put John Hurt in that story? And if by doing so, I can get to the end of Matt Smith's tenure as the Doctor and rather than have him be the Twelfth, and the next Doctor after that, bear in mind, Stephen Moffat at this stage doesn't know how long he's going to stay with Doctor Who. So he doesn't know who the chap after him is going to be or what the chap after him might necessarily have done. Stephen Moffat gets to the point where he says, OK, if I count David Tennant twice, then I can use the thing that was foreshadowed in The Five Doctors where the next regeneration cycle is in the gift of the Time Lords rather than being some other explanation that the guy after me might make up off his own head, then so much the better, because to the regular viewing public, it doesn't really matter. 
they don't know how a regeneration cycle that's come to an end is supposed to turn into another regeneration cycle. So it being in the gift of the Time Lords means neither one thing nor the other to them. But to fans, Stephen Moffat has given them the thing that was written in The Five Doctors. The next regeneration cycle has to be in the gift of the Time Lords. If Stephen Moffat had left that for somebody else, that other person might have said, well, it gets to the end of his 13th life. And he just regenerates. And fandom might have been scratching its head and saying, oh God, bring back Stephen Moffat. He wouldn't have done that. Do you know what I mean? So people pillory Stephen Moffat for the decision he made when actually I think he made that decision with the best of intentions for the very people who are pillorying him for making the decision. It was a production thing. They couldn't get Christopher Eccleston. He had to do something else. Controller of BBC One is saying, hey, John Hurt or Paul McGann, there's no question. And Stephen Moffat says, right, well, let's use that in order to make sure something else that I'm slightly worried about at some point in the indefinite future happens now instead so I can deal with it in the way that I think it should be dealt with. So basically, I think Matt Smith was poorly served by being the last Doctor when nobody knew he was the last Doctor until two stories before it happened including the people who were acting it and the people who were writing it. But it's something that was out of everybody's control. And, you know, I think they made the best of a bad job. I suppose um, that, you know, the idea of the Doctor marching on in the face of the fact that his, any action that he takes could be his last is something that could be filled up with by the books or the comics or maybe Big Finish in a, in a number of years' time. Just filling in those those blank spots. Quite, yeah. It's not the you know it's not the end of the eleventh Doctor's story when you get to the time of the Doctor, in the same way as it wasn't the no. end of Peter Davison's story when you got to Caves of Androzani. <laughs> no, he's been donning out on that for the last fifteen yeah. years. So, exactly, Mark. I think from a drama perspective, it would have been much more interesting if Matt Smith was the last. And every action, he you know he could see a dangerous situation, but you know, something was holding him back. If I do this, I will. This will be it. Yeah, that would have been really interesting uh, from a drama perspective, definitely. The time when it becomes pertinent is in the name of the Doctor, when because of the time name of the Doctor come out and people weren't sure what part John Hurt was supposed to be playing. Matt Smith mm. there looking at his grave on Trenzalore and people are saying, well, what's he talking about? That's hundreds of years in the future. He's got two more regenerations to go before he gets there. You watch Time mm. of the Doctor now and you can see why Matt Smith is crying on uh, Clara's sofa because when he's looking to go to Trenzalore, he thinks that's it. He thinks that's 13 and out. He thinks these are his last days of life. So that's the one story where actually Stephen Moffat's actually able to make something of it. You'll probably be labouring the point if that if the you know the Matt Smith Doctor knew that he was the last Doctor. I mean, you couldn't have or could you have every single story him going, "Will I or won't I? Should I or shouldn't I? I'm worried for my Not life." Not every single story. It, it, no. it would only work towards the end of his run, and, mm. and and you would probably end up something similar to the Fifth Doctor, where it's a it's a heroic it's a heroic death. You know, you know that. Uh, you're going to die, but you are still going to do the right thing regardless of that. You know what I would have done, you know, if, if it had been me and I'd have known, I would have had that. I wouldn't have said this is, you know, my last incarnation, unless it was the 13th and it was obvious that it was the last one and you had to deal with it. But I would have just had that doctor appearing and in his first story, 
and he spends his first couple of years throwing all caution to the wind and being the most sort of ebullient, getting in there and getting things done doctor you had ever had. And then in the last year, you know, his third year or whatever his last year would be, all of a sudden the character starts to become far more circumspect and you suddenly realise why he's been throwing things, you know, so throwing himself into things so much. It's because he's, he knows it's his last chance to do so. And then mm. towards the end, you have a story arc in the last season where he goes from being this doctor who's throwing himself into things into this doctor who's absolutely terrified of throwing himself into things. And that's how you finish it. That's what I would have done. But like I say, Stephen Moffat didn't know when he cast Matt Smith, so... I think we just have to make the best of what we've got. JR, I'll just read out a letter to you that we got from Doc Hoom from the Diddly Dumb podcast. Oh. Uh, Doc Hoom begins. <laughs> Doc Hoom begins. Gentlemen, and Nathaniel DeBell in our last podcast made a great point about Stephen Moffat's writing of women. Uh, that changing the master into a woman has added no additional dimensional quality to the master, which improves upon this already well-established character. I think the only argument in favour of changing the master or the doctor into a woman is that it would give the writers the opportunity to show different aspects to their personalities. So what does Moffat do the minute he's changed the master's sex? He writes her as a giddy, manic freak pursuing insane schemes with no credible motivation. This means A... He didn't change her sex, Doc. He changed her gender. (laughs) Just wanted to point that out. (laughs) Sorry, carry on. Keep going. (laughs) Moving on. Uh, This means A that she's no different to how the John Sim master ended up, and B, that there's now no chance of taking advantage of the change of sex to explore any nuances in the differences between male and female characteristics. It would be hard to believe that as intelligent a writer as Moffat would just ask himself, what's a generic female characteristic? I know, women are nurturers, aren't they? So I'll write the master's plot motive as being the provider for the doctor, cooking up for him the army she thinks he needs. Hard to believe, but what else is the explanation? In searching for an example of Moffat writing normal women as opposed to women with exaggerated personalities, you could only come up with Madame de Pompadour, which started me thinking. What about Nancy in The Empty Child? What about Sally Sparrow in Blink? What about even Riversong in Silence in the Library before she turns into a sassy returning character? They're all written with believable, nuanced characters. Sorry, they're all written with believable, nuanced characteristics. River and Nancy may be slightly less so given... uh, given what we're going to discover about River and given the situation in which Nancy finds herself. But Sally Sparrow is, a, is an example of Moffat writing a great female character we could actually imagine meeting in real life. She's smart but not a genius. She's brave but not blasé about monsters. She'll call the doctor out on things uh, such as don't patronise me because people have died and I'm not happy, but she isn't forever firing smug put-downs at him in the belief that being an almighty pain in the ass counts as being sassy. Look at how Moffat wrote the character of Nancy having to hide that she's been an unmarried teenage mother. It's written sensitively and believably, and, by the time we learnt about it, we've grown to like Nancy so much that our hearts go out to her in a situation because she's now a friend in trouble. In contrast, look at how Moffat wrote Amy having her baby stolen from her. Beyond a few tears, her reactions aren't at all believable. The loss of her baby is really just a plot point Amy is reacting to, and Amy comes across as such an acerbic character that it's hard to feel for her loss except in the academic's way of thinking. Oh yes, I imagine that would be a sad thing to happen to a hypothetical woman. And what do all these women have in common? They were written when Moffat was only writing for the show and not producing it. Whereas when R2D was showrunner, Moffat was being employed as a writer providing believable woman characters for someone else. 
is the difference now that the show is more about Moffat himself and so he's tempted to write female characters as Moffat women. Keep up the good work, Doc. Thanks, Doc. Do we have any thoughts about that? Well, didn't Russell T. Davis do exactly the same thing when he was a showrunner? He wrote women who came from nothing and were empowered by the Doctor before ending up in some kind of deus ex machina disaster and being sent packing again. Yes, you can make these claims, and yes, when you're writing one story a year, it's easier to make that one story a year distinct. But I think what's underlying this is a kind of sexism from the people who are making this accusation. Stephen Moffat writes all his characters sassy. He gives all his characters sassy dialogue in exactly the same way as Aaron Sorkin wrote all his characters sassy and gave all his characters sassy dialogue in the West Wing. That is the surface icing underneath when you get to what the actual characters are. They're not just the sass and they're not just the sassy dialogue. There's something else underneath. But Stephen Moffat appreciates that television is a medium for entertainment first and foremost and what he does is he writes entertaining dialogue for people to enjoy listening to and so the surface gloss that might not be especially realistic but we are talking Doctor Who which is not supposed to be a documentary the surface gloss might make it entertaining and I think the audience numbers globally speak for themselves in that people are entertained by it, shouldn't distract people watching it from realising that actually he's still telling interesting stories involving interesting people. And you only have to look at Series 8 to see the different character arcs that Stephen Moffat took the different characters on to see that that's true. People have said, for example, just throwing this in there, that Series 8 ignored a brand new doctor who's at the start of a new regeneration cycle in order to focus on Clara. Series 8 did no such thing. Series 8 absolutely across 12 episodes told the story of a doctor who's bewildered and frightened and who learns how to be himself again through the companion of his the character of his companion who teaches him all these things because Stephen Moffat doesn't spell out that that's what he's doing doesn't mean that that's not what he did if you look at Peter Capaldi across that series he is absolutely at the start terrified of the monster of a new regeneration cycle hanging on his shoulders and at the end of that series and he does this ostentatiously with the oh I know what I am I'm just exactly the person I've always been speech he has come full circle and he's realised that in spite of the fact that he now has a life that he never thought he was ever going to get and in spite of spending, you know, 12 weeks not knowing what to do with that life, he comes to the realisation, well, that's exactly what you do with that life. You keep on doing the good thing that you were doing before you got that life that terrified you so much. It's all in there. It's just that there are jokes on the surface of it. I think people forget to look any deeper than the surface sometimes. How do you feel about Doc's point or uh, yeah, point about... The master becoming a uh, woman. W- the master, yes. What he says about the master. Well, it's easy for the Doc to say in hindsight because I pointed out on the Blue Box podcast that actually 
you know, everybody was saying he's turned the master into a woman and she's exactly the same as John Sim was. She's just mad and her schemes make no sense. And I pointed out on the Blue Box podcast, actually, when the master was a man, all his schemes were about over-empowerment and taking power by force. And since he became a woman, we've seen precisely one scheme. And that scheme is about not taking things by force, but providing a subtle way of changing the Doctor's character so that he becomes more like her. And I said this was nurture rather than force. Therefore, it's more of a feminine characteristic than it is a masculine characteristic. But if you look at what she's doing with that feminine characteristic, using the word nurture is just giving a name to something that's a lot more subtle and complicated than that. She's not just made a Cyberman army for the Doctor and she's giving it to him as you would give somebody a birthday cake. She's created a situation in which this new Doctor, who still doesn't know who he is, might flip one way or the other. He might become like her, in which case they could become the equals again that she has always wanted them to be. Or the Doctor, and of course, as a viewer, you know this is the way he's going to go. The Doctor's going to say, oh, hang on, no, I'm the Doctor and this is what I do. It's a lot more subtle a storyline than simply that she's turned from somebody who takes things by force into some things in, into someone who tries to take power via nurture instead but that's what Stephen Moffat's done and I think that is an incredibly clever and intelligent way to treat a character that you've turned from a man into a woman to take somebody who's two-dimensional and make them three-dimensional but in such a way that doesn't contradict the two-dimensional character that existed before. Now JR, you you mentioned Aaron Sorkin uh, yes. a little while ago. Yes. Um, we, Mark and I, I think we all admire Aaron Sorkin as a as a TV writer. Absolutely. I was entranced by the by the newsroom, uh, which sadly finished uh, earlier this mm, year. Yeah. Um, comparisons are invidious, I suppose. But in terms of, and I think you've have you watched The West Wing as well? I oh, believe yeah, you've yeah, mentioned yeah, it before. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to ask the question, who is the better writer, Moffat or Sorkin? Taking a holistic view of their careers. Okay, I'd say Stephen Moffat was. Because as much as I love Aaron Sorkin, if you look at Sports Night, if you look at The West Wing, if you look at Sunset Strip, um, what was it called? Studio 54 on the Sunset Strip. Or, and if you look at the newsroom, he has basically just written the same show four times, but just said it in a different room. But if you look at Stephen Moffat, if you look at the things he's done, there are certain similarities between, say, Sherlock and Doctor Who. And there are there are similarities in his specific tics, shall we say. You know, the, 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 this, this timey-wimey thing that Stephen Moffat's famous for, right? You can use that to tell stories. But if you're telling different stories about different characters using that... The thing that people who detract from him will take from is the fact that he used that again. But he's just using it as a storytelling trick, the same way as a guy sitting at a typewriter writing a novel might use he said and she said. It's just something you use. It's a tool. But the stories that Stephen Moffat tells have over the years had much more variety of character and tone and subject than Aaron Sorkin has. So taking that broader approach, you have to say that Stephen Moffat's probably the better writer. Has um, Moffat 
written a straight drama? I've never seen Jekyll, so I don't know. But is, has he written a straight drama? Jekyll's a pretty straight drama. Okay, all right, fair enough. It's it's obviously it has some of Stephen Moffat's tricks in trade, but compared to most of the other things he's done, it's a pretty straight drama. A couple of days ago, Sony posted up on Facebook the uh, speech from the newsroom. Will McAvoy is doing that uh, question and answer with this uh, girl asked, why is America the best country in, in the world? And of course, people, all the other guys are going, freedom, freedom. And then Will McAvoy goes into a, a beautiful, I thought it was a beautifully written monologue of why, in Sorkin's eyes, and also the character as well, why America isn't the best country in the world. Now, I know Doctor Who is a children's show. Yeah. And Moffat is never going to write that sort of monologue on a children's show like that. No, he's not. And But, but you do get examples of, and especially Matt Smith was doing this, the Doctor making a speech about, you know, good versus evil, that we'll touch on some of the same sorts of things. And yeah, 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 Aaron Sorkin, I love him. He's a brilliant writer. I think he's absolutely amazing, etc., etc., etc. I'm not saying I think Moffat is probably better objectively to belittle Aaron Sorkin. I'm just saying I think Stephen Moffat has rather more arrows in his armoury than Aaron Sorkin does. Aaron Sorkin writes beautifully, but he only writes one thing beautifully. Whereas Stephen Moffat, I think, has written a number of different things with differing degrees of beautifulness. But I think that that wider variety makes him slightly more accomplished. And they're both hugely successful, let's be honest. They're both oh, massively yeah. successful. Yeah. Yeah, and also Sorkin wrote the uh, film The Social Network as well. And indeed, at the start of his career, he wrote a film called Malice, which is a psychological thriller about a, a stalker, basically. And so, yes, that is a different sling to his arrow. But mm. basically, since then, A Few Good Men, uh, The Social Network, other things he's written as well. I've, I have all his films on a DVD on a shelf behind me. Um but essentially, he writes basically the same thing. It's almost as if he's obsessed with writing about supremely skilled and qualified people and their interactions amongst each other. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, watch, you watch all those shows. I mean, the West Wing is populated by people who are at the very, very top of their game in their professions, and it's just, it's just that interaction. Whereas Moffat, uh, I mean, he goes down the romantic comedy angle. He, he does something like Jekyll or he does something like Doctor Who. So he, he does have that variety, as you say. And you look at something like A Few Good Men, and basically the story you're following with Tom Cruise and Demi Moore there is essentially the same arc that, over a much longer period of time, similar characters in the West Wing will go through. Which is not mm. to, you know, belittle his achievement. I, You know, A Few Good Men's one of my favourite films, The West Wing's one of my favourite series. I'm not saying that I think this is a bad thing. All I'm doing, I suppose, is pointing out that Aaron Sorkin has become really, really good at what he does. Why would he not do it? Mm. I, I, I sometimes find that because of my particular, my personal liberal leanings, I the the, the speeches that uh, that Sorkin gives his characters, I relate more to them. They 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 sing with me more than than anything that sort of Moffat has done post yeah, um, yeah. post press gang. Because yeah, I, I just I just find that, and I, I you know there are moments in the West Wing, um, and there are moments in the newsroom where the, the dialogue that's being exchanged is zipping across the room. Uh, I feel that appeals to me more than anything that sort of Moffat has has, has recently done. But I, I, th I think up to a point uh, in his career, you know, say, say up to say coupling, 
Moffat's dialogue and, and writing was has been very, very good. I don't know whether it's maybe Doctor Who that, for me anyway, feels like it's holding him back from his best writing. You could possibly be right. The trouble with Doctor Who is because you have to make it a science fiction fantasy universe, mm. you kind of have to lumber the characters with a certain amount of, well, you know what Harrison Ford or whoever it was said about the dialogue in Star Wars. You can write this stuff, but you can't make me say it. There has to be a, <laughs> there has to be a certain amount of that in Doctor Who, you know. So, however, you might want to get the beautiful stuff in, and however much of that stuff you have to smuggle in, you have to make references to the Medusa Cascade and the Nightmare Child while you're doing it. Sork in for me, anyway. That's good. <laughs> Look, they're both pitched differently, you know what I mean? Yeah. When I watched that that clip on on, uh, on YouTube the other day, I just sat back and thought, he's a fantastic writer, and why that show was cancelled after the third series, I don't know. But then Moffat will have some of that really great dialogue and writing in Sherlock. I mean, I had a lot of problems with series three of, of Sherlock, but the interactions and the dialogue and the speechifying, for want of a better word, is is as good as Sorkin's at its best in, say, something like Sherlock. And that's helped enormously by Cumberbatch and, and, and Freeman, but um, I mean they have to they have to yeah. they have to read the lines obviously that, that Moffat gives them. But and, and that is set in a more natural setting, even though the characters themselves aren't necessarily naturalistic. So we're saying that the actors lift it then. Well, also the situations is, you know, mm. what Rob was saying just now about those political speeches. Doctor Who doesn't lend itself to any kind of area where you can get a political speech. Not really. And even though you're talking about Malcolm Hulk, you go back to Malcolm Hulk and, you know, all his politics is there in the plots. It's not in the dialogue. So it's just kind of, yeah, Stephen Moffat would probably go on from Doctor Who to do something even more astonishing and finally maybe prove himself to those fans who doubted him that he's capable of doing it. But, you know, you've got to remember, if you're a Doctor Who fan, you can complain about the people who are making Doctor Who, but part of the reason that, you know, you have something to complain about is the fact that they are making Doctor Who, and, you know, there are certain boundaries beyond which it's very difficult to take the programme. Is it the two-parter in Press Gang? Is it something terrible, the two-parter? Oh, I've not seen Press Gang since it was on. People who don't think that Moffat can write, I would advise... Uh, the tip would be to go back and watch that two-parter. I think it's something terrible where there's the siege, and that's all I'll say about it. That's a, For something that he... I mean, that was his first writing gig, effectively. To write something like that is really astonishing, and it gives the lie that he's not a, not a good writer, I think. Anyway, anyway, that's just my point. Good recommendation. I do have those on the shelf behind me, so I might have to go off and watch that myself. J.R., you might find it strange to be watching the first series where it's a bunch of 15 or 16-year-olds running around, but as they age... I do remember it very well. It was a good from... show when it was originally yeah. on. I didn't miss an episode when it was first on. And that last season is is just brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Anyway. Mm. Well, the only reason why I haven't rewatched them is because I didn't have the money to buy the DVDs when they came out. I mean, there were four sets at about 25 quid or something. Mm. And I just waited till I... And I think I I just picked them up very recently, all off eBay, for less than a tenner for all four seasons. Money well spent. Yeah, so that's why I was waiting, basically. <laughs> <laughs> And now it's time for Who Knows, where we ask our latest victim, J.R. Southall, to guess the Doctor Who story 
uh, in eight questions based on comments left on YouTube. Are you ready, JR? This is going to be fun. I'm not going to know any of You're these. You're going to love it. Okay. Anyone know the name of the Cyberman guy with a window on his face that looks like T2? With a window on his face? Mm. Are these all old Doctor Who or are these modern I've Doctor Who I've mixed them up, well? JR. Well, you'd assume window on his face would have to be... Well, either The Age of Steel or The Next Doctor, so I'll go for The Next Doctor. No, it was actually Earthshock. Oh, was it? Yes. Jesus, are you talking about the fact that he had a glass jaw then, do you think? Yeah, look, I'm just reading these verbatim off YouTube, JR. I'm not editing them. This is going to get even worse. Here we go. I feel I should... <laughs> are you ready? Fair enough. I feel I should say the Father General shot the mistress with a cyber bullet. Clara didn't use a machine. Oh my God, can you repeat that? I couldn't make any sense of it. I don't think it's your reading. Oh, thank God. Okay. I feel I should say the Father General shot the mistress with his cyber bullet. Clara didn't use the machine. Got to be Nightmare in Silver, hasn't it? Not really. Death in Heaven. Father General. I think he's meaning the Brigadier. All right. Yes, all right. Fair enough. Well, I'm doing really well at this so far, aren't I? As I predicted. Every New Who writer just had a heart attack. I don't know. I would say that's listen. But I'm probably wrong. It's the visitation. When you blow up the sonic screwdriver. God, <laughs> Do you want to stop or keep going? <laughs> no, no, keep going. Okay. This is fun. Okay. I thought what they might have meant was this story is so good, everybody else is going <laughs> to not be, uh, you know, not going to be able to live up to it. But no, I, I got that completely wrong, didn't I? I always wanted a T-shirt that said you turned him into food. And another one with a glass Dalek saying, kill me, child. Oh, that's revelation of the Daleks. Absolutely. Well done. That's Rob's favourite, by the way. It is, actually. Uh, move on, move on. <laughs> I must admit, it's totally badass to see the Doctor kick guns out of people's hands and elbowing them in the gut, especially since he's a giant. And one thing I remember about this story is a god-awful ending. No, 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 no. And Nicola fills out her leotard very nicely. Is it Vengeance on Varos? Very close. Attack of the Cybermen. Oh, it's Attack of the Cybermen. Yeah, that's fair enough. I thought I because you had got the guns and the elbowing, so yeah. I was I was fifty fifty guns attack of the Cyberman, or is he talking about the acid bath bit in uh, Vengeance on Varos? I should have gone with my JR. Mark controversially said in our last podcast that uh, Colin Baker would have been better off having started with Attack of the Cyberman and ignoring Twin Dilemma completely. Uh, any thoughts on that controversial comment? Yeah, you're probably right. Uh, for two reasons. Okay, I'll give you two reasons. One, because, I, and I've said this elsewhere, I think when a regeneration happens, it needs to be in the last story so that the audience has got time to readjust to the idea of a new Doctor. You know, I think uh, six days, which is what was between the end of Caves of Androzani and Twin Dilemma, is not enough time to readjust to a new Doctor. And although, you know, uh, consciously you can say, all right, I know he's gone and I know this new guy's coming... Consciously, you can do that. Again, subconsciously, the things that we don't think about, the things that are just emotional responses, are emotional responses that when the Twin Dilemma turns up, you still want it to be Peter Davison, whether you liked Peter Davison or not. And then I think the other thing is that there wasn't an awful lot of editing going on with the Twin Dilemma. I don't think the Twin Dilemma's problems are how cheap it is. Doctor Who's got away with being cheap before. I think the Twin Dilemma's problems are that it tells a story that would have been more at home in a 1950s B-movie and it doesn't fit in with the other stories around it. You know, it feels like something from 60s Doctor Who. Whereas Attack of the Cybermen feels more like the rest of the stories that Colin Baker had in his era. So it would have been a more appropriate first story for him. 
The sad thing is that every single decision that JNT made about introducing Colin Baker worked against, the, yeah. you know, presenting him in the best light. Every single decision, the costume, the the placement of the story, the the the, the tone the that they were going to take, yeah, yeah the yeah. character is just remarkable, isn't it? Remarkable that he could he be in this JNT could be producer for five or six years and not know how to introduce a character. It just it's remarkable. Yeah. And you know what? Each one of those ideas by itself, not only would you have been able to live with it, but you may have been able to turn it to your advantage. Like, um, say, the character. If if you'd have gone with that character, but hadn't made all the other bad decisions, then people might have come to it afterwards and said, what a stroke of genius. Or if you'd have gone with that costume and a completely different tone for the series, people might have said, what a stroke of genius. Or if you'd have done Colin Baker's story at the end of season 21 rather than at the start of season 22. And none of those other things, people might have said, what a stroke of genius. But the trouble is you throw all those ideas in together at the same time and they just serve to undermine one another. I won't ask you uh, even more controversially about Rob's comments about uh, Twin Dilemma being a better story than ever. We'll move back onto the quiz, shall we, JR? Yes, let's. (laughs) <laughs> you guys know what's kind of creepy about the whole thing. Alex Kingston is 20 years older than Matt. Kind of scary to think that when Matt was 10 years old, she was already 30, practically old enough to be his mother. Decent maths there. I'm assuming that's the snog in the name of the Doctor. Nearly. It's a wedding of river song. Oh, uh, fair enough. Yeah, okay. Two more to go, JR. Janet Fielding is a brizzy. Awesome idea. A ring fight between Tegan, the worst Doctor Who companion ever, versus Alpha Centauri, the worst Doctor Who character ever, with nunchucks and switchblades. Jesus Christ. (laughs) My God. I'm not making this stuff up. It could be anything. Is it Snake Dance? I don't know, off the top of my head. (laughs) It's actually Legopolis. Really? If you've got to spare 10 hours a day, go and have a look on YouTube and get (laughs) these comments, because really... They're insane. Now, last one, JR. Last one. Go on. Is it just me, or is the NORAD similar to the Verger character in Hannibal? An all-male alien seemingly want to mate with Perry. Her hotness transcends time and space. Well, that's obviously Lime Shat, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Another great J&T production decision. (laughs) Adventure in tinsel and cardboard, that one. Yeah. Uh, 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 again, Doctor Who can get away with being cheap as long as the story's strong enough. Uh, it's when uh, you have a combination of a bad story and, and cheapness. the cheapness that. Uh, yeah. Um, you got two out uh, of eight, JR, I think. No, I got two. I got two. I was a bit cruel because if you notice, I did pick quite a few Eric Sayward stories and <laughs> Death in <laughs> Heaven and. Uh, Wedding of a Song because I think you're the only person who liked them. So I thought I'd pick them out anyway. And I still didn't get them. I know. That's okay. But thank you for participating, JR. It was fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was. It was if you're sitting in Australia. (laughs) Yes, I'll uh, send JR his prize picture of uh, Eric Saywood's autograph. Oh, have we done that? Oh, that's right. Sorry. That's your prize, JR. Again, (laughs) I had no part in that at all. Okay, again. Okay. I was like the guy behind the grassy knoll. And Rob Ehrman was the uh, guy firing the bullet. Yeah, right. and I was the guy in the firing sights. All right, so three, two, one. 
So that's another episode of 42 to Doomsday. We'd really like to thank JR again for coming on and enduring us for another for a couple of hours. JR, thank you very much for being on again. You're welcome. I felt like a rabbit in the headlights throughout. Thank you very much, JR, for appearing again on our podcast. That's okay. It's been fun to do. I've been Rob. I've been Mark. And I've been JR. Keep punching! And we'll speak again soon. You've been listening to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the Doctor Who podcast hosted by Rob and Mark. And I'm JR. You can contact us on our Twitter account at 42 to Doomsday. You can email us at our Gmail account, 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. Facebook us at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. Until we meet again, thank you very much for listening. We'll see you soon. I absolutely love Eric Say